Okay, so we're going to get started this evening. Um, if you please turn your Bible to Luke 11. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. It's going to be a powerful passage of Scripture we have before us tonight. It's going to teach us about the spirit in which we are to approach the Lord in prayer. This is, I have to warn you in advance, this is one of my favorite passages after I had gotten done studying it. Uh, If you were to ask me what passage of Scripture has most shaped and affected my own prayer life, I'd have to say it's this one, which already should warn you I've got more than enough to say about this passage, and I'm going to have to figure out how to limit it this evening, but... uh, but before we dive in to this passage of Luke 11, 5 through 10, let's ask the Lord to bless the teaching and receiving of his word tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you tonight as your children. Father, what a joy it was even as we were walking back from the park to see your people coming here tonight. Father, we rejoice in the miracle of this church. Father, we thank you for Uh, the grace that you have given us undeservedly. You have opened our eyes in faith to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and even have gathered here uh, tonight, your people, to worship you in prayer. And so, Father, recognizing that this is something that you have done, it's a miracle of your grace, we pray that you would honor and glorify yourself tonight. Uh, Guide us by your Spirit through your Word tonight. And I pray that we would receive your Word hear it and obey and apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we journey through this six-part study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we are in section four, which is principles on prayer from the mentoring of Jesus. And this is those times when Jesus would teach his disciples directly away from the ears of the unbelieving crowds. And we have learned two principles on prayer from this section of Jesus' life so far. The first is the priority of prayer, that when we come to circumstances or situations in our life, prayer ought to be our first reaction and not our last resort. The second principle we learned about prayer from these passages is the pattern of prayer, looking at Luke 11, 1 through 4, where Jesus gives, uh, really it's the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, where we realize that our prayers to the Father ought to be for and centered around an increase for God's kingdom and God's honor through the everyday matters of our daily provisions, our daily forgiveness, and our daily protection. God, please give me what I need today. Please forgive me of my sins today. And please protect me from evil today because I want to be a part of increasing your honor and your glory in this world. Well, beginning in verse 5 tonight... Uh, Jesus moves on from the substance of prayer into the spirit of prayer. He moves on from teaching us what we ought to pray for, and he starts telling us how we ought to pray for it. And I think you'll be shocked by what Jesus teaches here, because it runs so contrary to our own approach, at least speaking for myself, naturally uh, towards prayer. So often we are tempted to approach the throne of God in prayer, much like Esther approached King Xerxes, I imagine, right? Where's the golden scepter, right? Sometimes we approach God and we're thinking, okay, God, I just want to remind you, we good, right? I mean, remember the blood of Jesus? (laughs) Um, I know you're God and everything is under your control. That's why I don't come to you very often. But if it's not too much trouble, I'd like to ask something really quick, if that's all right. Your will be done, and all that. 
I'm just going to drop off a quick suggestion card really quickly, and I'll never bring it up again. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Right? That's kind of how we feel tempted in prayer towards God. Now, obviously, that was very extreme, but the point is sometimes we can feel very awkward uh, bringing a request before God in prayer, almost paralyzed by these, these thoughts, right? Am I saying this rightly? Am I wording this correctly? Am I thinking, behaving, speaking properly in the presence of God? Well, in tonight's passage, Jesus encourages us to break out of that paralyzing feeling of awkwardness and invites us by the love that is ours through him to boldly approach God's throne with a spirit of persistence. And might I even use the words pious impertinence. We are to approach the throne of God with pious impertinence. Jesus' lesson in this regard comes in uh, two parts. In verses 5 through 8, we're going to see the picture of shameless insistence followed in verses 9 through 10 by the promise to shameless insistence. So let's look at first the picture of shameless insistence. What should our prayer life look like? Well, Jesus tells a story to help us understand what it ought to look like. And I want you to notice right off the bat that Jesus does more than just tell us a story. He actually poses to us in this passage a question. He said to them, verse 5, which of you has a friend, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. Those were really flat bread wafers back then, or big crackers if you want to picture it like that. Uh, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now notice that is a question Jesus asks. Which one of you would go to a friend at midnight and ask this? In that context, the answer was obviously nobody. Why? Because even if you did go to your friend's house in the middle of the night, the nature of your small request at such an insane hour would be so rude, you'd surely get the answer from your friend, What? You only need three crackers? Go away. It's in the middle of the night. We're all asleep, and considering how the houses were back then, there are seven kids between me and the door, and I just locked it by drop, or just dropped it six hours ago by dropping this huge beam in front of the door. I'm not getting up to get you anything. Go away. And that would probably be the end of your friendship, honestly. We know what answer we would get if we would do something like that. That is why no one would ever do this. The obvious answer to Jesus' question is nobody. Now, don't get me wrong. This midnight request to take care of a guest that had just arrived was a very important request, and I want to make this point at the beginning because it will play into the end. Middle Eastern hospitality back then was legendary and still is. Fewer duties in life were more important than making sure that you as a host were taking care of your guest properly. The friend locked up in, uh, tight in, uh, for a night in his house would have known this, that this was very important. But Jesus is making the point to his disciples, even with even when faced with the highest duty of caring for a guest, there are limits that even you won't cross. Some things are viewed as just too rude, too improper to ever do in the pursuit of something needful. So no one would ever do this for their friend, uh, to their friend in the middle of the night and ask this, with the result that then you would not get what you need. You would not get your bread. But hypothetically, Jesus is setting up a situation here that we ought to think about. If you did go to your friend in the middle of the night, and you did shamelessly persist in asking for your three crackers, what would happen? You would get what you needed, 
even from a disgruntled, tired, irritated, inconvenienced, and now ex-friend. Right? Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because of his impudence. That word means lack of respect. It means rudeness. Now, lack, not lack of respect for his friend, notice. It's that this man who is knocking on his door has no respect for himself, right? He acts in a completely shameless way. We've all heard the phrase, show some respect for yourself, right? This man had no respect for himself. In his utter desperation and need, he did not mind how shameless, how brash, how bold, and how improper he appeared before his friend as long as he got what he needed for that night. And so because he was shamelessly persistent, because he was annoyingly relentless, the door opened and he received what he desperately needed. That's Jesus' simple point from this picture. Even in everyday life, if you, out of desperation for a need, get over that perceived line of propriety with a friend, you will get what you need. This man got what he needed. Why? Because out of his utter desperation, he stopped worrying about what was proper. And he just started asking for what he truly needed, whether it was properly communicated or not. Ladies and gentlemen, that is how you and I are to pray. Because look at the promise that is given to shameless insistence here in verses 9 through 10. Jesus says this, some of the most fascinating promises in all of Scripture. Jesus said, I tell you... Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. These are fantastic promises, so I want to break them down kind of by looking at five points, looking at it from five different angles tonight. And I want to begin by giving first a quick cautionary point to what Jesus has just said. This is not a blank check. Jesus is not saying, name it and claim it. God will give you whatever you ask as long as you really want it. He is not saying that at all. When Jesus says ask, when Jesus says seek, when Jesus says knock, he's already defined for us what we are to ask for. He's already defined for us what we are to seek and what we are to be knocking at God's door about. What are we supposed to be asking about? The things in verses 1 through 4. The advancement of God's honor. The advancement of God's kingdom through my daily provision. My daily forgiveness. My daily protection. That is what God is saying we ought to ask Him for. And when we ask and seek and knock for the increase of God's honor and the advancement of God's kingdom for our daily bread, forgiveness, and protection, when we ask persistently, it will be given to us. So it's not a blank check. This is Jesus promising if you pray for this and like this, you'll get this. In context, Jesus is teaching us how we are to pray the Lord's Prayer. Often we look at verses 1 through 4 and we never look at the verses immediately following. This is very important. And that's actually what adds to the conviction of what Jesus is saying in these verses. How many of you, as I've just explained that this was not a blank check, that these promises were for specific concerns, had a slight twinge of disappointment deep inside you. That you were like, rats, I kind of hope this applied to everything I prayed for, right? Do you see how that shows how far our hearts are from where they should be in prayer? 
Jesus says life, forgiveness, protection, everything you need to be involved in God's kingdom for God's honor, you will receive if you ask for these things. Our response ought not to be like, man, that's all? Our response ought to be great because that is the only thing that I want. That is the only thing that I desperately need. It's another reminder here that God needs to change our hearts so that we would actually be the type of people to ask, seek, and not for the things that God asks us to ask, seek, and not for, not the things that we desire. Now, with this caution out of the way, how does this admonishment to ask, seek, and not connect to the story that Jesus taught? This is the instructive parallel that you could consider. The parallel is this, between what Jesus teaches about a friend with bread and us with God in prayer. The parallel is this. If a grouchy, sleepy, irritated, unwilling human friend can be forced by shameless insistence to give what he ought to give, how much more is our willing and divine friend, God, who is our Father, eagerly give us what he ought to give us also? And that's what Jesus is going to say in the very next verses that we're not going to look at tonight. It's true. Some things are viewed as just too rude. Some things are viewed as just too improper to do in the pursuit of something needful. But Jesus says, not with God. Not with God. If you don't believe me, listen to some Psalms tonight. I'm just going to quote them for you. Psalms 54, verse 2. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. When's the last time you prayed like that in a prayer? Listen to me, God, when I'm talking to you. Pay attention to me. How about this one? Psalms 55, verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea. Don't you be hiding from me, God. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Finally, this one takes the cake when I came across it. Psalms 102, verses 1 through 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Listen to me, God. Listen to me. Don't you be looking away. Pay attention to what I'm going through when I'm talking to you. Be sure to answer me quickly. Listen, if that doesn't kick any sense of perfect prayer and propriety out the window in prayer, I don't know what else will. Some things are viewed as just too rude, too improper to do in the pursuit of something needful, but Jesus is saying not so with God. And so Jesus is telling us don't worry about propriety to keep you from praying. Just pray. Don't worry about perfect words. Just pray. Come to God with your needs Pray with shameless insistence. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. I want you to also notice how there is an intense progression that takes place in here. Think about it. Asking is just that, right? It's asking. It's, it's the picture of the man outside the house in the middle of the night going, Psst, I know you're asleep, but I, I need some three loaves, right? Seeking is more active. It's the pursuit of the request. Listen, I have a guest. He's in, it's, he's in after midnight, after a long journey. He's tired. He's famished. Friend, you know he needs food. And knocking is that shameless insistence of, don't you go back to bed. <laughs> Wake up. I, you haven't answered my request yet. Right? I'm not going away. I'm going to pound on this door until you give me what I need today. That's how we ought to pray. As one commentator even said as he was describing what the meaning of that word impudent means in verse 8, he said this, Sue God. Lay out your case before Him. Father, You have promised that You would do this. You have said that You are this type of God. 
well, here is my circumstances. I believe you exactly to be the God that you have said. So now, fulfill your promise. Show yourself to be the God that you declare yourself to be. Be who you promise to be. This is what you also see in the Psalms. You say, no, this is, this is not right, Pastor. Okay, well then, rip Psalms out of your Bible. Because listen to Psalm 17, verse 1. The psalmist says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. What are you saying? He's laying out his case before God. Listen to my cause, O Lord. Why? Because it is just. I'll make my case. Psalms 27, verses 8-9 through says this, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Right? Lord, listen to me. Why? Because I am seeking you in prayer just like you told me to do. He's laying out his case. Psalm 69, verses 16-17 through 17 says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. In other words, God, you said that you were a God of steadfast love. You're a God of abundant mercy. Father, look at the circumstance that I am dealing with. It is time to show yourself to be my God in this way, and it's time to do it now. Laying out the case. One last example, Psalms 39, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers, right? You who told us that we ought to take care of our sojourners and exiles, I am a sojourner and exile in this world. Will you take care of me? He's laying out his case. You could say all these psalmists are showing something that you could call pious impertinence, right? Persistence in faith and in prayer. He's knocking at the door. And Jesus says, God's okay with that. He's okay with that. That's what Jesus is teaching. Don't be paralyzed by propriety or perfection. Just pray. What do you think Hebrews means when it says, come boldly before the throne of grace? Just ask, seek, and knock. In fact, all of those verbs are in the present active tense in Luke. Jesus is saying, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find it. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. We must come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Boldly. That brings us to the next thing I want you to see in verses 9-10 through is the desperate passion that ought to be in the heart of every believer when they pray. The reason why anyone would ever pray like this, with this type of shameless insistence, knocking and not stopping, This type of impious uh, pious impertinence, this type of persistent boldness is because that person is gripped in the passion of desperation. They know their true need and they know their true solution. Think about Jesus' story. The reason why that friend went out and abandoned all forms of propriety to to passionately insist for bread at midnight was because he was in desperate need. He had a guest that had to be fed. And so in desperation, he did whatever it took to get whatever was needed. His passion is the explanation for his persistence. And that's what's needed in our lives if we are to pray in the spirit that Jesus teaches us to pray. Remember, the disciples are asking Father, or they're talking to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, teach us to what? Pray. Well, that's more than just learning the pattern for prayer. That's learning the passion of prayer. Desperation and passion. You see this again all over in the Psalms, but just one example. Psalms 143, verse 7. The psalmist says, Answer me quickly, O Lord, 
My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those that go down to the pit. See, his desperation was the reason for his passion. And we see examples for this throughout the pages of Scripture, okay? So think about it. Jacob, desperate in the face of Esau's threat, shamelessly wrestles with God in the dirt, saying, I will never let you go until you bless me, until you will fulfill the promises you've given to me, right? Anna, who was faced in, uh, with cultural shame, she shamelessly prays to the point where Eli the priest says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? And Anna replies, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have been pouring my soul out to the Lord. Shameless. To the point where someone thought they were drunk. Ezra, the restorer of Israel, desperate in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness, shamelessly then says, then with my garment and my cloak torn, I fell on my face. I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I prayed there in public. Nehemiah, desperate in the face of hearing news of Jeremiah's uh, Jerusalem's state of destruction, shamelessly sat down, wept, and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Paul, desperate in the face of Israel's unbelief, cries out shamelessly in Romans, words that you would almost say, is that even proper? Where he says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then as we'll see later on in Colossians, Epaphras, who is desperate in the face of need for the Colossian believers to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, he shamelessly would not stop, Paul says, always struggling on their behalf in his prayers. But the greatest example of all is Christ. Christ, desperate in face of having to die for sinners beneath the wrath of God, Offered up in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7 says, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. I wonder if we had been there in the garden, 21st century America, if we'd have said, Jesus, pull yourself together. Don't be so emotional. Have some respect for yourself. Could it be perhaps that one of the reasons why you have never showed this much shameless emotion in prayer is because quite honestly, you've just never cared that much. That we've never been desperate for the things that Jesus says that we ought to be desperate for. Well, if we're to be taught by Christ how to be people of prayer, then we need to start caring, namely about the increase of His kingdom and the increase of His honor, about our daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection to those ends. And start caring about it so much that we become shamelessly insistent and desperately passionate for it. We ought to pray that God would give us such a passion in prayer. The British poet James Montgomery wrote this. I have to finish up. Uh, Prayer is the soul's sincere desire, uttered or unexpressed, the motion of a hidden fire that kindles in the breast. It's prayer. It's passion expressed to God. Desperate enough to ask, 
enough to seek and enough to knock. Now, this progression of ask, seek, knock teaches us a very helpful reality about prayer, and that is this. Sometimes we'll only have to ask in order to receive. Sometimes we'll have to seek. And sometimes we'll have to knock down heaven's doors and lay our hands upon the throne of God until He answers our prayers according to His perfect will and wisdom. Refuse to let go. Have you ever wondered why? You say, well, why, why does God do that? I mean, why doesn't it just stop with ask? Why can't I just say a five-minute prayer and that's all that's needed? Why does He push us to the point of having to ask and seek and knock continually? Why does He do that? Is God like the annoyed friend described here, awakened in the middle of the night that is very resistant to answer our prayers? No. So why must we seek? Why must we knock? Why must we have shameless persistence? First, it's because it shows something of our heart. Prayer shows us, teaches us a lot about ourselves, right? It's one thing to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and involve me on that one day. But what does it say about your heart if you only pray that one day and you don't pray it for the rest of the week, for the rest of the month, for the rest of the year? It shows you that you really didn't care that much about what you prayed. If you cared about it, you'd keep on praying for it. So one, it shows our hearts. If I value the request, I will persist in that request. We persist in the things that are important to us. So God asks us to seek and knock because it shows us our heart, but ultimately I think God asks us to do more than ask, but also to seek and knock in shameless insistence because God desires faith. And that's what God's endeavoring to do in each and every one of us. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who, what's the word? Diligently seek Him. It takes faith to pray and never lose heart. It takes faith. God could have just promised in James 5.16 that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. But he doesn't say that. He promises this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why? Because God desires faith. Faith enough to pray and keep on praying. Faith enough to ask and keep on asking. Faith enough to seek and keep on seeking. Faith enough to keep on knocking till you knock down the gates of heaven and the promises that God has given you come rolling out just as he said. Why must we seek? Why must we knock? Because God desires faith, faith enough to pray. And that's actually why later on in Luke 18, when Jesus gives a parable on prayer, he gives it to the effect that we are always to pray and never lose heart. And he finishes this parable with this statement. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why does he say that? It's because it takes faith to pray and never lose heart. It takes faith to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. These are the reasons why we must ask and seek and not because God is in the business of molding our hearts and growing our faith. So anyway, I got through most of it. What a passage though. What a picture. What a promise from God. Those who have faith enough to keep asking will receive. Those who have faith enough to keep seeking will find. And those who have faith enough to keep knocking will have the door open for them. So what should be our prayer in response to this? Who gives faith? Who's the only one who can make us the type of people that long for God's honor? 
long for God's kingdom, and have the faith to keep on asking for it. Only God. We ought to pray, God, give me such a heart of faith, of shameless persistence, so that by praying and not losing heart, I might receive, I might find, and I might have doors open to me for your honor and for your kingdom. So for that goal and towards that end, for the advancement of God's kingdom and his honor here in our church, in our lives, and in our community, let's tonight truly pray with some persistence and faith.